You're listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Mountain City Church. In this series, The Gospel of Luke, Jesus for All, we walk through Luke's account of the life and ministry of Christ. All right, if you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, if you don't, there should be one right in the pew in front of you. Turn with me to Luke chapter 4. We're going to continue our time together in Luke today. Over the last uh, two weeks, um, what we have seen is Luke giving us this testimony that Jesus is the Son of God. We had testimony from John. We had testimony from the Father himself. We also had testimony from the genealogies that um, Luke gave us that took us all the way back to Adam. So this is the, the, the testimony that he's, that he's giving us, and, and we are called to believe this testimony because what we're thinking about God and who he is really plays into how we live our lives each and every day. So Luke has taken three long chapters, you know, from one to three, to introduce the person of Jesus Christ, the Savior whose birth was announced by angels and celebrated by shepherds has come into the world. He's here. He was born in Bethlehem, dedicated in Jerusalem, raised in Nazareth, and baptized in the Jordan. His grand prologue ended with a genealogy that triumphantly declares Jesus to be the son of Adam and the son of God. So now Luke kind of shifts his focus. He's, he's shifting into actually the, the rest of the book. He's, he's now given us his identity, who he is. We are to believe that. But now he's going to shift into this time where he's going to spend the rest of his time in the book telling us about his mission. So he's, this is who he is. He's the son of God. He's the Messiah to the Jewish folks. And now he's going to tell us about his mission. You know, if you think about it, oftentimes when, when someone that is elected or is inaugurated into something, the first one of the first things that they kind of do is they might undo some things of a maybe of a previous administration, and then they might enact some things that they actually want to do or, or was elected um, by the people to do. And what we see here is the same thing with Jesus. This is the same idea. Jesus' baptism is his inauguration. He was baptized in the Jordan by John to keep all righteousness. And we, we looked at that last week, why that is so important for us. That his righteousness is perfect because that is what we're banking on in order to stand before God on Judgment Day. is Christ's righteousness. So at his inauguration, the baptism, the Father says, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Which gives us a, a great reminder that if we are in Christ, if God is pleased with his Son, he is also pleased with us. He is pleased with us. This is my son with whom I am well pleased. Now the first thing on Jesus' agenda is to deliver a crushing blow to the devil. That's the first thing that, that Luke is going to show us. The first thing that even Matthew and, and Mark also goes through is that he's going he's to deliver a crushing blow to the devil or Satan. Whichever word you want to use. What is he doing? He's showing that he has come to crush the head of the serpent. He's tying, this, tying it all the way back to Genesis 3. I know, I do this every Sunday. Yep, get used to it. It all goes back to what happened in Genesis 3. He is undoing what happened in Genesis 3. He is crushing the head of the serpent. 
And he's bringing us into a new paradise with God. Jesus is coming into the world as a unique person for a unique purpose. To triumph over the devil and to reverse Adam's curse. He's reversing the curse. He is the triumphal son of God. He is reversing the curse. In his baptism, the heavens were opened. And in his temptation that we're going to see today, all hell was opened and pushed against him. But he emerges victorious, which is just a prelude to the great blow that he will deliver at Calvary. This is just pointing us to say, okay, this is some temptations that we're going to look at today. This this is um, him undoing, reversing the curse, but one day he's going to go to Calvary. And then one day he's going to throw that devil or Satan into the lake of fire. John sums this up very well for us. What is Jesus' mission? He sums it up very well in, in 1 John 3, 8. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. To destroy the works of the devil. And one of the favorite works or schemes of Satan is, is temptation. Which is what we will see today in our text. It's through temptation. Luke begins with the setting of Jesus' temptation. We find this in in Luke 4, verses 1 and 2. Read that with me. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. Yeah, if I didn't eat for 40 days, I'd be hungry also. Now, the first thing that, that maybe jumps, that jumped out at me, that maybe jumps out at you, the first thing that jumped out at me was the double reference of the Holy Spirit. Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit and was led into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit. He was full of the Holy Spirit and led into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit. In fact, what we know is we're, we will continue to read and see even next week and in, in, the, in, in, in the weeks to come that Jesus' entire ministry is directed and powered by the Spirit. He does nothing without hearing from the Father or being guided by the, guided by the Spirit. This is just a prelude to how we should live our lives also. We should live our lives by the Word of God and by being led by His Spirit. We are to keep in step with the Spirit, Paul later tells us. You see, right after the temptation account in verse 14, we see that Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. We see this idea that he lives and does things by the power of the Spirit. Everything Jesus does is by the power of the Spirit. This battle is fought by the power of the Spirit. Yet, he was filled with the Spirit, and the Spirit led him there, but he didn't just leave him there. He was there with him the whole time. So what we learn is this is not a surprise attack. Which tells us that everything that happens here is part of God's plan. Everything that happens here is part of God's plan. This is not a surprise attack. He was led by the Spirit into this. Already here we see an important lesson for our own daily Christian experience. If Jesus followed the leading of the Spirit, so should we. Trusting that even, here's the hard part, trusting even that our trials and our temptations are under the Spirit's sovereign control. Right? God has a plan for us. His plan is for us to be um, ambassadors and also 
agents of reconciliation, but He has a specific plan for each one of us, and that is to be more holy or to become holy. Holy not as imperfect, but set apart for His work. So even those trials and those temptations are ways that He is molding us and shaping us so that we can be a better tool or a better witness for His glory and for His purpose and for His kingdom. Because God is truly working all things for good. He's working all things for good. Jesus is being led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days. And this harkens back to Israel. For 40 years they wandered around the desert. They wandered around the desert for 40 years. He's in the desert for 40 days. So we have Jesus presented here to us not only as the new Adam, reversing the curse all the way back as, as a as crushing Satan's head, but he's also undoing what Israel did, where Israel failed. And they failed, just as Adam failed, in their disobedience. They would not obey. God would tell them something, and, and, and they would disobey. And so they're wandering around, 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 around in the desert. Both Israel and Adam failed in the same way, which was in their disobedience to the word of God. The first man faced the first temptation in a garden, and when he sinned, our entire race was cast out. An entire generation of Israel who walked through the sea were cast out by never stepping foot into the promised land. They wandered around the desert till they passed away, and they never got to the promised land. Jesus will obey where both Adam and Israel failed. This is the point that Luke is making here. Jesus will obey. He will obey his Father. He will obey the Word of God. He will obey and not fall into temptation. Jesus' perfect obedience is what reverses the curse for all those who are in Christ and put their trust in him. Let me tell you, brothers and sisters, this was no walk in the park for Jesus. This wasn't, you know, as as Nate alluded to, And Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 2 that that he experienced everything that we experienced it. In fact, we'll see later on where it says he starts out with man does not live by bread alone. When he talks about man, he's trying to identify with his humanity. He's saying, as a man, I'm suffering the same things just as we would suffer them. It was true hunger. It was true weariness. It was true weakness because he was fully man. I mean, Jesus went 40 days with no food while being tempted by the devil, hand in hand, both at the same time. What, the Luke, uh, what Luke records here is the three climactic temptations of what happened during that time, which would have, to come, have come from the mouth of Jesus, if you think about it, to the gospel writers. He's the only one that was out there with him. So he's the one that's telling the story where Luke probably got it from um, one of the disciples. Notice the intensity of this conflict. Jesus was hungry. Being fully human, he was also weak. And Satan comes as he often comes to us in our weakness. In our weakness. And you know what? I can add something else. Just because of the, the culture that we live in and the times we should live in. Let me say it that way. He often comes in our boredom, doesn't he? 
Like when, when we're bored, when, when, because our, our brains are so wired to, to consistently take in information and, and just to live in the times that we live in. I'm not, not pushing against, you know, saying it's wrong. I'm just saying this is a fact. It's like, it seems like when we're bored, that's usually when those temptations come rolling in, isn't it? But Jesus was, was very hungry. That's when Satan comes whenever we're weary or we're tired. A lot of times when we're tired, he gets the best of us and tempts us in ways that we stumble and fall. Think of the contrast here. Think of Adam and think of Jesus. Adam had everything. He was living in paradise and failed. He had everything. He, he'd get to walk with God. He had all the food that he needed. He had everything that he could possibly need, but he failed. Jesus had nothing, and he won. Adam had perfect conditions and caved in. Jesus had the worst, but succeeded. The first temptation that we come to fits the setting. Jesus is hungry, and he ought to feel free to provide himself with food. He can't call up DoorDash and say, give me some food. But Satan wants him to use his power. The power he purposely submitted to the Father at the incarnation. He says, I'm, uh, yes, he's fully God, he's fully man, but I'm, I'm, I'm giving you the, the powers and I will follow you and I will follow what you say and when to use them and how to use them. That's why he prayed a lot. He's, he did only what the Father told him to do. We read this in Luke 3 through 4. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. His first temptation is one of provision. It's one of provision. And it attacks Jesus' thinking. Kind of like Satan attacked Eve. Did God really say that? He gave her a, a new way to look at the tree. It's a new way to think about the tree. Satan is trying to get at how Jesus is thinking. You're said that you're the son of God. Just turn some stone into bread and eat if you're hungry. Just do it. Prove yourself. We know that the Satan is trying to get at his thinking that because of how Jesus responded. Surely this is a simple and straightforward request that meets one basic need. I'm hungry. Make yourself some food. Transform a stone into a loaf. You deserve it, Jesus. That is the angle Satan uses. Satan is asking Jesus to satisfy his own desires without trusting and obeying the Father. Remember, he was led out by the Spirit. This is God, the Father's doing. This is why Jesus answered him with a portion of Deuteronomy 8.3, which has to do with God's provision for the nation of Israel. God promised he would protect his people Israel and had demonstrated his protection by providing manna for them. Remember, they got manna, they got manna, then they started complaining. We're tired of bread. That's all they did is they grumbled and they grumbled and they grumbled. And that's why they kept on going around um, the desert for 40 years is all they would do is grumble. Everything that God did was not good enough for them. They would just grumble about it. 
But this is why this is a temptation of provision. And he uses Deuteronomy 8.3 to speak against it. He's like, no, God is faithful. He is faithful. God has demonstrated his faithfulness for 40 years to Israel. For 40 years they were fed. They might have liked what they were been fed, but they were fed. He was faithful to them. Here in Deuteronomy, Moses is reminding the nation not to doubt God's goodness upon entering the land. To not doubt God's goodness. If food were uh, come to the son who was led into the desert to fast, surely God could give it to him, right? Surely the father could give it to him. The devil was really suggesting that perhaps God was abandoning Jesus. And so he had better look out for himself. Right? You better, better look out for yourself, which is, is go back to the garden. That's what it's about. It looked good for Eve. It looked good for her. Make me my own God. Be in control of my own life. That's what he's tempting him with. You better look out for yourself, Jesus. Turn that, turn that stone into bread. Matthew uses a bit more of Deuteronomy passage in his account of the same episode. Man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Satan is saying, stop starving yourself, Jesus. Turn stone into bread so that you may live. But Jesus is saying, no, true life comes from trusting God and being nourished by the word of God. True life comes from trusting God and being nourished by the word of God. That's what we need. We need to be nourished by the Word of God. To trust God and be nourished by the Word of God. There's something more important than food. Jesus told us this in John 4, 34. Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of Him who sent me and to accomplish His work. We're to be nourished by His Word. We are to trust God. In all areas of our life, Jesus is resting in God's will, God's direction, and God's provision. This is this temptation number one, and it failed. He did not turn the stone into bread. He's trusting God for the provision. When the time comes, under God's, the Father's command, He will provide food. But I'm not going to take that into my own hands. I'm going to trust God's word. I'm going to trust God's word. However, Satan, you know, just because the first attempt failed, he doesn't give up without a fight. He will continue to wage war against Jesus until the last desperate moment when he is cast into the eternal fire of God. So having failed at one temptation, he tried another. This time it was not a temptation to provision, but a temptation to power. So he's saying, Satan, you need to provide for yourself. Now there's this temptation of power. Read with me in Luke 4, 5 through 8. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And he said to him, To you I will give all the authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will be all it, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. The devil took Jesus to some lofty height. 
In an instant, he could see all the royal treasures, military power, and cultural achievements of the world's greatest civilizations. He lays it all out for him. Everything from the golden roof of the temple in Jerusalem to the mighty Roman Empire, it is about the splendor of all that man has created. And Satan says, I'll give it all to you. I'll give it all to you. Satan told Jesus these kingdoms are his to give. That might mess with our theology a little bit, won't it? Was Satan telling the truth? Did he really have the authority to offer Jesus the world? Perhaps he did. Once sin entered the world, Satan gained power over the kingdom of men, which is why Jesus called him the ruler of this world. But if Satan did rule the world for a time, it was only by God's permission, never by his own possession. And even what was handed over to him in the power of sin was still under God's sovereign control. So Satan was telling Jesus a half-truth at most. He was posing as the ultimate power broker. Like, man, I got some property for you and I want to sell it to you. Here it is. All you got to do is one thing. You can have it all, Jesus. All you got to do is one thing. But he was offering more than he had to rightly to give. So where's the temptation in that? Where's the temptation? This is the one that, that, that hit me the most. This is the one that, as I started flushing this out, this is like, ooh, this is, wow. He did this for me? He did this for you? Here lies the temptation. All that Satan showed was already Jesus's. It was already his. He is the son of God who had the right to receive the kingdom, the power, and the glory. How would Jesus receive it? Therein lies the temptation. How would he receive it? That's the temptation. Because what was God's way for Jesus to receive the kingdom. God's way was for Jesus to suffer and die for the sinners. And only then will he receive the kingdom. But Satan offered it to Jesus on the spot. He could have the exaltation without the glory. Without the agony. The kingdoms of this world could become the kingdom of Christ without the scorn, the scourging, the spitting, in the bloody crucifixion. You know what, Jesus? You could skip all that right here. All you got to do is bow a knee to me. You could skip out everything that you have to suffer. You can have it all. Just bow a knee to me now. The kingdom of this world could become the kingdom of Christ without scorn. Satan was tempting Jesus to seize the crown without suffering the cross. Satan was tempting Jesus to seize the crown without suffering the cross. All he had to do was worship Satan. Just bow a knee. Satan was offering Jesus a shortcut. He could bypass Calvary and go straight on to glory. And each one of us sitting here should be really, really thankful that he chose not to take the offer. 
Because the only way that, the God, that God the Father designed to solve our biggest problem in life, which is sin, was for Jesus to, was to suffer and die. Also, his kingdom would not have endured whatsoever. What would we be waiting on? What is our hope in? Because if, if Jesus took the temptation then and there, yeah, they would have ruled together and it would have been a, a great kingdom, but it wouldn't be an enduring kingdom. It would, it would come crashing down eventually. If he took the temptation, if he bowed a knee, he would never have the everlasting kingdom of his father on our behalf, on our behalf. Jesus did not contemplate how much easier it would have been to seize the crown without suffering the cross. He simply refused to worship Satan or to compromise in any way. Jesus answered him this way, and Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. He was refusing to become a lesser Messiah who ruled over only an earthly kingdom. And he was rejecting Satan's desperate attempt to become his Lord. Jesus was choosing instead to walk the way of the cross. His goal was not to gain a kingdom for himself, but to save his people. His goal was not to gain a kingdom for himself, but to save his people. Satan was challenging Jesus' desires, his desire to be a king, or his desire not only to do the Father's will, but his desire to save his people. He had a mission to accomplish, to save us, his people. Jesus chose the cross for us. Jesus denied the devil for you and me. Jesus chose suffering for you and for me. God's order is suffering than glory for you and for me. This is why Tim read, I had Tim read 1 Peter. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes through, it is tested by fire, may be found as a result in praise and glory and honor of the revelation of Jesus Christ. Our suffering leads to glory. He is shaping us. He is molding us into his son's image. Jesus chose the cross. He could have had the kingdoms right there by bowing a knee. But he went to suffer for us. What a wonderful Savior we have. Jesus resisted the second temptation to have the crown without the cross for you and for me. By this time, Satan was getting rather desperate. Jesus had refused to use the divine power to satisfy his appetite, he had rejected the offer of, of the easy kingdom. Yes, Satan thought he detected an area of weakness in Jesus. He noticed that Jesus always went back to Scripture. And in fact, Satan was using Scripture because Satan knows Scripture. So just because as much Scripture knowledge you might have doesn't mean that that is what saves you. It's a changed heart. Because Satan's here quoting Scripture if you could get Jesus to sin, it would have to be on the basis of something God said in his word, 
I'm going to say something that, that God said to trip you up, Jesus. So therefore, how can you, are you going to disobey God's word? Well, it's only disobeying if you twist the scripture. And he, look at verse 9 with me. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. And he's going to quote scripture now. For it is written, He will command his angel concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. So he's like, I got you, I got you, Jesus. Right? I got the word of God. He said, just throw yourself down to prove that you're the son of God and God's word will protect you. What God said, he will make sure that he will do for you. Right? This is the third temptation. It's one of protection. You had the temptation of of provision, the temptation of power, and now the temptation of provision, of protection. Putting God to the test. Satan is now using scripture by citing from Psalm 91. He took Jesus to the apex of the temple, either on the roof over the sanctuary or the royal portico that soared 500 feet above the Kindred Valley. From the dizzy height, he challenged Jesus to throw himself on God's mercy. So what he was doing is he was saying, okay, if you're trusting God, right? if you're saying you're trusting God for the food and you're going to choose the suffering in order to gain the people instead of the kingdoms, well, the word of God says this. If, if you jump down, he's going to do something for you. Let me challenge you at that point in time. Let me challenge you there with the word of God. If Jesus took this leap of faith and landed safely, then everyone would know that he is the son of God. That's kind of what Satan's trying to say to him. If you take this leap, then everyone will know. Because we, you know if you take the leap that the word of God's going to come in, he's going to protect you. You can see how Satan's kind of trying to work through this, this thinking, this reasoning. Satan was tempting Jesus to demand a sign instead of taking God at his word. To live by sight rather than by faith. He's just testing you. If you're the son of God, jump. The word of God says that you won't get hurt. Don't you believe the word of God? The word of God says you're not going to get hurt. Don't you believe that? Jesus refused to jump, thankfully for us. Instead, he rebuked Satan with a clear command from God, using Scripture to interpret Scripture. He says this in verse 12, And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. He does not challenge his father, but trusts his father. I'm not going to test him in that way. I trust him. I trust him. We learn a lesson here. Do not test God. Jesus shows us this. This is the heart of sin, putting ourselves at the center. If God will do X, then I will believe in him. Jesus here is showing us better way we are called to trust God, not test God. See, Jesus chose a different leap of faith, a much greater leap of faith. And that leap of faith was obedience to death on a cross. Later in his life, Jesus does put his life in the Father's hands, but is not a leap from the temple, but hanging on a cross for us. He says this, calling out in a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. 
And having said this, he breathed his last breath. The day came when the father did prove his faithfulness to his son by raising Jesus from the dead. You want a sign that Jesus is the Messiah? He's risen from the dead? That's your sign. If we want a sign that Jesus is truly the Messiah, he is truly the Son of God, he is risen from the dead. And Jesus is willing to wait for this. Jesus passes the test. He passes the test. We read this in Luke 4.13. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Satan came to Jesus like a bully comes into a classroom. For hundreds of years, the bully has won over humanity, and now Jesus stands up to the bully and wins. And like a defeated bully, he doesn't seem too strong anymore because Jesus is our Savior. For now, devil leaves him, not entirely. Jesus will put up with him until the appointed time for him to be cast into the lake of fire. Which really illustrates for us, this whole passage illustrates for us what James 4, 7 says, Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. He's already defeated, foe. He is already defeated. He's just trying to see how many of us he can drag with him. So we end with Jesus being faithful in the wilderness. He is the faithful and obedient son of God. He came into the world to destroy the works of the devil. Adam turned the garden into the wilderness. Jesus goes into the wilderness to give us a garden. To put your trust in this Jesus today. He triumphed over the devil in the wilderness. He triumphed over him in his ministry. He triumphed over him at Golgotha. And he will finally triumph over him in the end. He alone gives us the real freedom and joy we long for. Jesus does give us an example to follow. To live by God's word. To worship God alone. And to do God's will even when it is hard. Yes, he is an example. To not doubt God's word or to doubt his love for you. Not to seek earthly glory, but to seek God's will. Not to take the easy way out, but to live sacrificially in light of the glory that is to come. Yet he gives us a lot more than an example here. He gives us hope. He gives us hope. Jesus isn't in the wilderness primarily as our example. He is in the wilderness as our Savior. He is the victorious Son of God. He is faithful until the end, becoming the atoning sacrifice that we need in our ultimate victory today. Victory over sin, death, and hell through our union with the victorious Son of God. He has come to restore paradise and to usher in a new kingdom. By his obedience in the wilderness and his perfect life, his death and resurrection, he has opened up the way to paradise. He will give us entry into his kingdom, all who trust in him, which which why we won't have to be anxious today. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. This is made possible through faith in the Son of God. As Luther said, 
Did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side. The man of God's own choosing. You ask who that may be? Christ Jesus. It is he. Lord Sabbath, his name, from age to age, the same. And he must win the battle. He gives us the ultimate victory over Satan. And he gives us the grace and power we need in our daily temptations. Do you trust in him today? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that Jesus has defeated Satan. Lord, that he gives us the grace that we need to fight our everyday temptations. Lord, that he didn't choose the easy way out to become king by bowing his knee to Satan. But Lord, he chose to suffer, to go to the cross, to take the wrath that we deserve. For us. Hebrews tells us it's the joy that was set before him. Each one of us. That's a God you can trust. Because that's a God that deeply, deeply cares for you. Father, I pray if anyone does not trust that God today, Lord, that trusts Jesus, Lord, I pray that you would change their hearts so they may see you for who you are. Lord, I pray that you would work by your spirit to do so. Lord, for those of us who have walked with the Lord for a time, Lord, we know these temptations. Some of us know them even more than others, Lord, and may we be reminded today that Satan is defeated. We've been saved from the penalty of sin. The power of sin no longer has control over us because we are in Christ. And Lord, our hope is one day that, and we know it is a good hope, that the the presence of sin will be completely gone when Jesus comes in the new heavens and the new earth. Father, I pray that we can walk in that glorious truth today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Mountain City Church. To learn more about our church, visit our website at mountaincty.church. Thanks again, and may the Lord bless your week.